following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I was joking with one of our guests this morning that it was actually his job to preach this morning. <laughs> and he said, I came to hear the word. Um, and the truth is that uh, our guests this morning are deeply involved in the work of community building and reconciliation in our city. And they were telling me they're not allowed to say that they're preaching the gospel, <laughs> um, but that's what they're doing. That the gospel informs every moment of their life and every action that they take. And uh, so in that sense, you're going to hear the word preached and proclaimed just in the stories that they tell um, this morning. But they would take away my uh, ordination if I didn't read a Bible verse to you, at least one. Uh, I want to I read to you the, the passage that we have been focused on this, during this series, and, and which I'd like to ask you to continue to study on your own. It's from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 and following. And one of the key verses will splash up on the screen, but listen to this whole passage. From now on, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. So we are ambassadors for Christ, since God is making his appeal through us. We entreat you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These words are so profound when you think about the fact that what he is saying is that we are called to carry on the work of Christ. That work which, yes, in one very real and important sense, has been done and was done long ago, but which has not yet been brought to its complete fruition that we will see at the end of all things in the new heaven and new earth. In that in-between time, as I said last week, we are called to be ambassadors of the reconciliation that has been offered to us. There's a place in the Bible that says you have to forgive people because you've been forgiven. You're all familiar with that verse. This is a similar concept. God has reconciled you to himself through Christ, and it is your job now to be reconcilers, to draw others into that. That's our calling as ambassadors of reconciliation. That's what this series is all about, and that's what I want our lives to become more about when we are finished with this series. Now, I said last week that we have a few goals. We want to listen, we want to learn, and then we want to act. And I talked about how we want to listen to Scripture, and we want to listen to our brothers and sisters who are different from us. Um, somebody gave me some very helpful feedback that said, don't just say listen to our non-white brothers and sisters, because there are some in the room <laughs> um, who are part of Artisan. And that is true, but the the true, it's also true that we are predominantly a white congregation. We don't see in Artisan Church um, this perfect picture of humanity where people from every tongue and tribe and nation are worshiping God together. 
we're not quite there yet. And I think that's part of what God wants to call us to. But the point is I want us to be listeners. And that's what today is really, really about, listening. I want you to hear the stories from people who uh, have lived a, a, a life that is different from yours in all likelihood, who live perhaps in a different part of the city, who encounter different types of problems than you and I, for the most part, tend to encounter in our daily lives. And there's lots more I could say about that, why it's true and whether it should be and so forth. Um, But it is not my job to proclaim the entirety of the gospel in this moment. I want to hear from our guests. And actually, I'd like to ask Joel Geiger Greenwich to come up. Joel works with these three gentlemen um, and knows them well, and he knows our community really well. So Joel is going to introduce our guests to you, and then they'll get a chance to introduce themselves a little bit. And then Joel's actually going to sit up here with them. Mainly we want to hear from them, but Joel, um, you, you may be able to kind of be a little bit of a liaison since you, you, um, you know their work and you know our work, and you may see some connections that, um, that not everybody else would see. So uh, thank you for bringing them to us, and thank you, gentlemen. Um, on behalf of our community, we'll uh, look forward to hearing from you. Awesome. Well, I'm Joel, everybody, uh, and it's a true honor and privilege for me today to get to welcome three uh, men who I look up to very much here in Rochester. I look up to them so much. It's been a, a huge privilege for me to be able to work with them for the past year uh, in their work at the Northeast Area Development and, uh, and the University of Ro- I'm a student at the, univers- at the University of Rochester, and we're uh, part of this uh, uh, community-based participatory research team. Uh, so it's been really cool to kind of see uh, just different cultures come together to work for a common purpose of just community building, community engagement. Um, so I'm going to invite uh, George, Robert, and Wallace to join me up here. And um, I guess you guys can see where you guys are going. <laughs> and um, and just, just to give you a brief background on, on um, each of them. So Wallace, he is the uh, Family and Community Engagement Coordinator at NEED, at Northeast Area Development, it's NEED for short. And uh, Robert is the Commercial Development Director at NEED, and George is the Executive Director at NEED. And just to get us started, I would uh, like for each of you to spend a minute or two just talking a little bit about um, who you are, what what it is that your role is at NEED, and... um, yeah, what your role is at NEED. Um, good morning. I am Robert Moses. I am Commercial Development Director for Freedom Community Enterprises, which entails the Freedom Market, Freedom Printing, and Freedom Cafe. Uh, it's a subsidiary of Northeast Area Development. It's a for-profit within a not-for-profit. Good morning. <clears throat> Praise God. My name is Wallace Smith. I am, first of all, a man of God, a servant of God, Father, grandfather, great grandfather, and husband. You know, people people don't believe me when I tell them. Sometimes I have some grand great grandchildren. I'm 70 years old, so uh, and I work with Northeast Area Development, and I got involved with them sort of incidentally, but that's another story. And we're on to our director here. Okay, I'm the director. I never like to use the term where there's like hierarchy. I just have actually no one works for me. I just have more responsibility than everyone else. <laughs> so, because it's, it's, it's just something with me. Uh, again, my name is George Moses, and I first want to thank uh, the pastor and his congregation for really 
uh, just inviting us. Uh, when Joe came and asked us about it, I was like, you want us to come to your Sunday service and do a panel? Mm, well, that's, that's a definite culture shock for me. <laughs> we all, I'm also a man of God, and they don't really give up their Sunday service. So I want to thank you guys truly for actually, you came here on Sunday for something. That's going to be one of my questions because Joel, because he knows I like to ask questions. So one of my questions toward the end is I'm going to ask, well, why are you guys all here? What is it that you're looking for when you come to church on Sundays? Because uh, as you talk about reconciliation, and I really just looked it up, what is, it, what is reconciliation? It's kind of like sharing beliefs. And if you really don't know what someone believes, and it talks about confessing, but if you don't say it, then there's a lot of, I assume, and a whole bunch of assumptions going on. So I'm really looking just forward to the conversation. Uh, I'll talk about me in the context of our overall conversation because I do have questions as we have and you have your questions. Great. I look forward to the discussion. And I'd like to thank Joel, who is an ambassador, a good ambassador for you, in that you know he invited us, as you said, to a worship service. And it's a cultural shock for us because we don't do this. And that, that's saying something for your, a lot about your congregation, especially your leadership, okay, which have you moving in a right direction. You're right, because Sunday mornings is the most segregated day of the week, you know. And if you're moving in that direction, you're truly moving toward reconciliation, okay. So you'll learn more about us again in the course of our conversation. All right. Thank you all so much for, uh, for introducing yourselves. Um, I'll just let you know how I'm going to try to frame this. I'm going to ask you a, a series of questions. Some of them will be, uh, I'm going to start with some, some more personal perspectives that you might have and might be able to offer to us. And then I'd like to ask you one or two questions about our city. And if you could give us some information and maybe enlighten us about some things about Rochester we may not know. And then I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about the church, because you are all churchmen, uh, in addition to community workers and organizers and um, I think you have some unique perspective that you could help us uh, with. And then I hope that there will be time to, to um, take a few questions from the congregation. We're going to do that via text message. You're going to make my phone blow up. Um, and then I'm going to have to choose like two questions from the 40 that come into my phone. Uh, but we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Um, could I start by asking uh, each of you, this is maybe, a, this is maybe the, sort of diving in with both feet in the deep end, if you will, um, could you tell us what is, what is one common way that you see racial inequality in your community, which is also our community, that we might not actually be aware of or likely to think about? I'm going to pull any punches from the start here. <laughs> I believe somewhere in the Bible it, it admonishes us to teach, teach one another, treat one another the way we want to be treated. And we depart from that all too often when we get caught up in the materialism of the world, okay? Good case in point, I think, would be, uh, well, I don't use the term reverend. I use the term minister. But Minister House was just convicted of something that he did when he departed from his, who he was spiritually as a man of God, okay? And he got caught up in the world, okay? Where if we stay focused on spiritual principles, I think, you know, we can take the world in a way that God wants us to take it, or back to him, back, you know, to his teachings. And I may have departed from what you asked, but this is me. I'm staying grounded in the word of God, okay, as I 
told you earlier, you know, like how the Spirit had led me to Second Corinthians chapter 4, okay, this morning, before I got here, okay, you know, I was up and reading because it just hit me, okay, we have to stay grounded in who we are as men of God. Um, my personal perspective, I see it from a point of education. The inequality starts with the education because there's a, a psychological slavery that's going on for the lack of awareness of what's going on around you. And for the average folk, that gap is getting wider for those that are in the know and those that are not in the know. So if you're not in the know, those inequalities and those divisiveness are, are increased like 10 times over. So it, it makes it harder to navigate everyday society for the average person. Um, you'll know it by its fruit. Uh, I'm thinking about something that Rob said along with uh, the prayer of confession. When the prayer of confession, we actually confessed this morning as a, a group to know good from evil. Uh, so a lot of times folks... And just a quick question, by just show of hands, how many folks in here are racist? <laughs> because I, I know a lot of times when that term is thrown out, and a quick response is, I'm not racist. Not even actually having a clear understanding of what the person is actually saying. So one thing that helps me understand it is uh, from the terms of, you talk about inequality, good and evil. The fruit will kind of tell you, before you get to the, the racist part, what is good and what is evil. So what do I mean? Um, there's a term, have you heard it called poverty pimping? Poverty pimping. Okay. Um, poverty pimping is, it's gone on over the years where folks were supposed to work in impoverished, poor communities where they just never solved the issue. The issue goes on forever. And it's Group one group gets rich in their resources, and the others group the other group their condition worsens. That's pimping. So you're pimping poverty. So when we talk about so then when they look at it and they say, okay, well, you look at well who's this group and who's this group, and most of the time it's generally people of color on the bottom and people of non-color, yes, uh, at the top. So then all of a sudden then it jumps to okay, it must be racist. Because the policy or whatever the work is, is racist. So a lot of times, I look at the concept of inequality through a different lens of what is good and what is evil. And more importantly, how do you address this? Because it's just that whole, uh, when you go home with yourself, what are, you, what are you thinking about? Do you see that? And then what is your response to seeing, like, wow, this is, we've been working on this issue since 1964. And it's worse. And we've dumped billions. So then you have your conservatives saying, we're tired of dumping money into the same thing and it's getting worse, which is to a degree based off of the data true. So I look at it as good and evil as it rests in inequality. And then how does the individual go and look at, okay, well, I am benefiting from someone else's misery. The reason I raised my hand when he asked the question is because we are all racist. Whether we want to acknowledge it or not, whether we want to realize it or not, okay? We examine ourselves, and we find those biases inside. We either benefited from some of the things he talked about, uh, white privilege, or we react to self-hatred if we are people of color, which has been a conditioning that has been bred in us, okay, for a while. Now, when I met Joel, I used a term with him. 
you know, about being white on the outside and black on the inside because I didn't really feel as though, you know, Job, while well, being raised in another country, he actually accepted me for who I was, okay? And that's why I said he's a good ambassador for this congregation, okay? And he did anything he had a question about, he would ask me, okay? Just ask, okay? Where a lot of times people don't ask, they assume they walk away with assumptions, okay? Now, we had an awful lot of conversations, all right? And I, I, I like to believe that as a man of God, he's a very good person, and that's how everyone, I believe, you know, should be, because he, no, he has no problem, you know, operating in the crescent zone, which is where we work, okay? That's a very dangerous area, especially for a person of his color. Very dangerous. But he has no problem. Why? Because he accepts everyone for who they are. He meets them where they are. And actually, uh, he's actually safer in the Crescent, based off and of the data. <laughs> he's safer. The data shows an African-American male is more at risk than a person of not color in the mm-hmm. Crescent. So he is actually safer in that zone. And for those who may not know, could you describe, what, what does the Crescent mean? Some people might not know that term. The Crescent is uh, the most violent neighborhood in the city of Rochester. It spans from St. Paul Street all the way to Culver Road. And it's as wide as Norton Street to East Main. So it's the most violent area of the city of Rochester. And it forms a crescent, like a crescent. So it makes sort of a crescent shape on a map if you look at it. Yes. Oh, man, I have a million follow-up questions already, and I know all of you do too. Um, could I ask uh, either Wallace or Robert to speak to what George said about uh, things are worse than they were in 1964? Um, because, you know, uh, last week I showed a, a, a picture um, from a newspaper clipping when, uh, of Dr. King. And a lot of us, uh, I know speaking for myself as a, as a white person who grew up in a very white town in a very white state, um, I kind of grew up with the assumption that, that racism had been solved with Dr. King. And uh, we don't see people holding signs anymore, and, the, and you can drink at whatever water fountain you want to and so forth. And so can you tell us and help us understand how things are worse now than they were then? By a show of hands, how many of you were around for the rights of 64? Not that many. That's the biggest thing about it. There's a huge gap that's unacknowledged in these communities that from those, the civil rights era, a lot of education about it was not passed down to the generations that came afterwards. So there's a huge gap of information that's not out there. So it makes it hard for the average people today and families to advocate toward those social justices. So, yeah, A lot of the conditions that were festering then that sort of add to that Combustion. It was. It wasn't planned. It was just something that happened over all the exhaustions of poor housing, lack of employment, poor education. All all of these things that were going on then are going on now to a much greater degree. You know, look at we are Rochester is the last in the country graduating African American or Latino males. Last in the country. Can you imagine? Last in the country. That's that's sad. We spend over. $700 million a year to educate our children and we are last in the country? I mean, so where have we gone with this so-called awareness that came out of the riots? You know, yeah, there was uh, uh, 
some housing that came out of it, or a few jobs, you know, passed on by Kodak, you know. Uh, there was very little in the way of, you know, education gains. But, I mean, look at every discipline. We are going backwards as the people instead of forwards. And, I mean, people of God have got to start stepping up. When I looked at that welcoming, I said, boy, look, if we, were, if we could just be there. If we could just be there. I mean, we'd be much further ahead as a people. I'm the human race. He was there at the riots. We would hear the stories from him on how it started. How many people, by the way, show of hands, you answered if you were if you were around for the riots. How many people knew that there were riots in Rochester? Okay, so that's not that's not close to hundred percent. We have a number of people in the room who who didn't know that there were ever any uh, any any kind of racially related riots in Rochester. Um, given that tidbit of information, I'll ask you the, to sort of continue to, to talk about our city a little bit. Is there anything else that you, you might like us to know about Rochester? And um, perhaps maybe this is a little bold, but if I could ask you to speak about what it is like to be black in Rochester. Um, things that we just kind of help us, help us understand a little bit more specific to our city. Because I think a lot of us love the city of Rochester. Many of us live in the city of Rochester, but even those of us who live in the city of Rochester tend to live in fairly uh, upper-middle-class neighborhoods of Rochester. The ones right behind us, for example, I live in the neighborhood of the arts, um, right you know, next to, a, next to a, an art gallery. So I don't, I, I, even though I love the city and committed to, to living here, I still don't see some of this. So could you enlighten us a little bit about, about our city? Tell us something that we might not know. And if you'd like to include information about, for example, the Freedom Market, uh, Joel told me some awesome things about that. I know people would love to hear about that. Well, Rochester, uh, and again, you're going to get perspectives. My perspective is not, I don't speak for all black people. You know that, right? Absolutely. Could you okay. say that again? <laughs> I don't speak for all black people. Right. You're That's asking right. a perspective from George Moses. And I, I, if I could just show. interrupt you for a very brief second, I apologize if it sounded like that's what I was asking no, you to no, do. No, no, uh, no. <laughs> it's just some, when we have the conversation, because I was looking at a paper. Joel actually defines himself as South American. <laughs> I was looking at a paper. I was like, wow. So a lot of times we're having the conversation. It quickly goes down to black and white. And I don't profess to be that one black guy talking for all of I'm talking from... I'm an African-American male that's 45 years old. I went through a different perspective. He's an African-American male that's 70 years old. His perspective is totally different from mine. We have a lot of arguments about it. And Rob's perspective is totally different. It's different than mine. So my perspective on Rochester is going to actually just be from my perspective, where I actually grew up in. Uh, we're actually more segregated now than when I grew up. Uh, you hear the term concentrations of, of poverty. So what it looks like is, and it's it's interesting what's going on, uh, you see the issues of class really rearing its head in terms of poverty is, there's uh, racial similarities, but there's definite class based off of money. Who has and who doesn't have? And then there's a perception that, okay, if you're poor, then these are the things that go on in your neighborhood. Then versus if you're affluent, these are the things that go on in your neighborhood. We're talking about culture, where... When I grew up, we didn't have a lot. We weren't rich, but we didn't have the level of issues and violence that's going on today. Not at all. My best friend was Giuseppe Siragusa. <laughs> he was an Italian. I think his, his mom, no, he stayed with his grandma. She didn't speak a lick of English. 
but I would hang out with him growing up. Where I stay now on Parcells Avenue, it's very segregated now. So it's, it's a different neighborhood. And I'm really just um, turning my head what uh, Brother Wallace and Rob were saying, the term of the education of ignorance. There's a lot that people just don't know. So you just, there's a lot of education that has to happen. And the city right now is in a very unique place. We can actually go one way, we can go the other. Because of the election. And a, a very divisive election where it's being described as, well, it's just racial without having conversations. Because when you look at it, there is like a small group, good versus evil, who believe certain things, but then everyone is being just, you can't have an opinion without being called necessarily where your opinion is racist. So we're at a, a very interesting place in terms of where Rochester is, where it's, my opinion is very inflammatory. Words are just thrown out there, very inflammatory words for sensationalism. So we have an opportunity to really address these hard subjects or to continue, we can go backwards very quick. And that's from a 45-year-old African-American male. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Wow, that's hard to follow. Uh, for me, um, the history of Rochester, I'm still studying it. So knowing of where it stood for the civil rights area, rights for women, etc. Um, I think one of the saving factors for me personally was education was at the forefront of our household and our family as a whole. So we didn't go to the inner city schools. I actually graduated right down the street from here, school number 35. Uh, we had a lot of programs and things that were in place back in the days that's not in place now for the children of the inner city. So they lack and they struggle for things and ways to get out as opposed to back in the 80s. When I went to elementary school, these things were in place for us. So as you transition to nowadays, you just see it. There's a lack of a lot of things that we had back then that these children don't have now. So it makes it twice as hard for them to navigate society because of the things that are not in place anymore. And could you give an example or two of what those things are that, that were in place when you were oh, in school that aren't here now? Oh, social programs. Absolutely. Um, going to 23 school, which was off of Park Avenue and 35 school, which is right down the street on Field Street. Um, I always was aware that I was the poorest kid in the classroom. I was maybe three African-American students would be in those classrooms. But I knew the, under, uh, the importance of the education, so I made the most of it. So education was always at the forefront where I don't think the average teenager and child today or average family understands how important education is as it pertains to you making it in this society nowadays. Uh, I came from a family of 11 other siblings, and our parents always provided for us. My father had three jobs. In fact, he actually died on the job. We didn't relate to being poor because we were actually rich in love. Okay, So material things, we knew we didn't have a whole lot of material things, but it didn't matter because we had a beautiful family home setting you know, both parents were in the home whenever my father could be there, you know. And whenever he would be there, my, my mother would always jump on him to bake because he was an excellent baker. God, he's an excellent baker. And, but they would stress education, 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 okay? And they saw to it that all of their children got an education. So that, that education strand is just is so, and we see the, the troubles with the district 
and education and then segregated neighborhoods. So to a degree, your level of education, sorry, is really going to be, it's going to impact your perspective on what is taught and what you see. There's a formal and informal education, formal in schools and informal because your neighborhoods are teaching you something. There was a, a joke, and I tend to smile and laugh about a lot of things, just so I don't go crazy. <laughs> when they talk about crime and all these different things, I'm like, well, I don't want to live next to it either. <laughs> I want a nice neighborhood, too. That's irrespective of not so much of all black people or all white people. There's a culture. These are the values and norms that we value in this neighborhood, that if you want to play your music that's cussing everybody out real loud all times at a night, and you want to settle disputes by coming out in the middle of the street and duking it out or having a gunfight, uh, that's not the neighborhood I want to live in. I want to live in a neighborhood we can actually have. I don't want to come over your house every night. I don't want you coming to my house every night. <laughs> but where we just look out for each other, we share things, we share our cultures. You bring what you bring to the table. Because, that, again, it's that informal learning. So one of those biggest pieces, and it's the education that our children are really being robbed of a real education on what the world is actually like. Because I'm on Parcells Avenue. That's not the world. That is not what the world looks like. And I've had the opportunity, I was in the United States Navy, to travel around the world twice. And I was like, wow, somebody tricked me. This is not what it's, it's not real. What goes on here in this country versus the rest of the world, and even this city, is not real. It, Walt, I told Brother Wallace, I went to Walt Disney. And I said, there's, there's Walt Disney here. This stuff is not real. Scott, can I ask yes, a sir. question? Yeah. So um, I was wanting or hoping that um, you could elaborate a little bit about the work that goes on at the Freedom Market because I know that the Freedom Market does work every single day to address the issue, uh, issues in education, right, among many other things. But would you, or any of you, just take us through the day in, a day in the life at the store and how it's gone about becoming uh, the hub of the community, as you call it. Well, I'll let Brother Wallace talk about a day in the life, but Freedom Market as a whole was, in a nutshell, to bring healthier access and healthier options to the communities because, you know, they talk about the food desert or the lack thereof of healthier things in the inner city because we have so many um, corner stores on every corner. And what they provide, you know, you can eat, but over time, you know, it's not good for you. So being able to provide that healthier access outside of the public market, which is open every Saturday, you have to have an access to fresh fruits and vegetables inside of your store. But to actually educate the community about that, how do they? Because we never knew. I mean, if I knew back in the days that going to McDonald's 10, 15 years of buying fast food would give me diabetes, I would never do it. But here you go, 2012, being diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. I can't eat the stuff that's in the corner stores or I would actually die. So it's having that education and access and giving people because the average person does not know. So it always goes back to education. So we have a mission. Mine is a personal mission to make sure that myself and every customer that comes in the store has education about what is and what ain't, know how to read nutritional labels, and then know how to count calories on a daily basis and have those provided inside of the store for them to be able to access. Yes, and Robert has done a good job in setting the tone for our customers to be able to assess what it is that they have been eating and sort of altering their diets to something more healthier. 
and you want to gauge what happens on a daily basis, as you've been there, you know, you, you know that it's like the wind blows many directions, and it depends on what day it is. It could be a violent shooting, whatever, whatever. But the day in a freedom market, 12-hour day, is something like you'd never experienced before. You know, you probably never realized that there was so much going on in that community. It's a hub of what's happening in that community, okay? We actually have the pulse of the community coming through that store on a daily basis, okay? Just day before yesterday, a guy beat his woman all the way into the store, and she came to the store and asked to use the phone and call the police, okay? She was afraid to go out, okay? And she went another direction when she went out, okay? But, you know, that happens on a, on a daily basis, okay? And, you know, we have to be there, you know, to stand up really for what we believe in, God first, okay? And trying to make a difference in the lives of our customers, because that's very germane. We see children in there when they should be in school, they're in the store. And we, we challenge that. You know, we don't, we don't wait on them, but we ask them, why are you not in school, you know? And my goodness, there's one child there who I still don't know who his mother is. I've asked him a thousand times, and, and I get a different answer every time. And they, he comes into the store with different people. Are you his mother? Yeah. Are you his mother? Yeah. Are you his mother? You know, I'm saying, what's going on here? You know, but he is, believe it or not, he is the sharpest in the household that he lives in. Was he five or six years old? About six, seven years old, yes. And he is the sharpest. He's even sharper than the adults that live in the household, okay? But they won't tell you who his mother is, you know? And, I mean, that, this is a dysfunction of our community. And somebody's got to get on top of it. Complaining to the authorities hasn't really done much, okay? Because it still exists. And they've had impact teams walking that street, even going into that house, Okay? No difference. But as it comes back to the, the store, you know, the store has got to, it's got to exist, you know. We still uh, function, and we still greet people. You know, we do our surveys as a responsibility to the research team, you know. But uh, I wish that we could have a greater impact on the lives, the personal lives. I mean, to, to whatever degree, I'm not sure, because Robert relates to this Peeling back the onion. Once you peel back the onion, you better have something to offer. Otherwise, it's easy to say, well, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Mm-hmm. But once they tell you, okay, finally, I trust you enough to tell you, okay, what's wrong with me? I'm living in a power. I haven't eaten three days. It's that or the third. You have to have the resources available to help them. Otherwise, you're just as big of a problem at, you know, diving deep into those problems of what's wrong with each family, what's wrong with each child. If you don't have the resources to wrap around them, you're just as much of a problem. So as it pertains to the freedom market, it's still a work in progress because we have to get those transformational relationships still in place as opposed to because for the last decade or two, all they've known going to each corner store is a transactional relationship. You come in, you buy something, you give me the money, you go out the door. In those transformational relationships, you get to know it back how it used to be, the mom and pop stores. Everybody in the neighborhood knew your name. The person at the corner store knew your name. So it was an extension of the family inside of the stores. Now with the last 10 or 20 years, and no disrespect to the Middle Easterners, but that's what's been happening on each one of our corners. They're all, each and every corners, in the half a mile radius of the freedom market, there's 24 other convenience stores on every corner. And it's systemic that way. Do they all make money? Do they all progress? Taxes show yes. 
But at the same time, it doesn't give the community, it's not an asset to the community. And those dollars that they spend in those stores do not regurgitate within our community. They don't provide jobs for the people in the community. So it's like you're almost left out. You have a system that's systemically subtracting from the neighborhood and it's not adding anything. So over time, you talk about 10, 20 years now, almost 25 years this has been going on. That's what's been happening to the communities. They dissipate on a rapid rate. Oh. Uh, I have a million follow-up questions, <laughs> but I, I'm going to try to transition us to, to thinking about the church a little bit. We're, we're a church community, obviously, and I know that you are all men of God. And um, before we take a couple of questions from the congregation here, um, I'd like to ask you to speak a little bit about the church's role and, and our calling in all of this um, as, as followers of Jesus. And could you talk about how... How has the church's role and involvement in the community changed over the years that you've been working in Rochester? Uh, is the church more effective than it was, less effective than it was, say, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago? Me, um, I would say they're less effective as they were back in the days. Because like I said, we through our churches, we had more social programs. We had basketball leagues, after-school programs that all derived from the church. Now, when you talk about uh, the corner stores that are on these corners, there are also just as many churches on our corners. But what's starting to happen that I see, and this is just me speaking from my perspective, the churches that are starting to be run like businesses. They have a board of directors, this, that, or the third, and it's hard to see where you know, the community engagement happens unless there's an interest that's involved in it so we have to put the charge on the churches that are on every corner that say they're doing this work that say that they're community oriented you just have to keep that charge on them that when things arrive or there wouldn't be as much murder and crime inside of the cities if everybody had the buy-in process not just the community organizations but the churches business owners etc so it has to be a buy-in process from the inner city churches and whatnot that are involved in these same communities. Thank you. Somebody who already knows my phone number texted me a question and said, I drive through the Crescent and see seven churches on my way. Oh, yeah. What are they doing? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, they're not pimping. Poverty, 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 poverty pimping. pimping. <laughs> you know, my point of reference is the 64 riots, okay? Because on the heels of the riot, the Council of Churches got together and sent for a man and his organization, the Woodlawn Organization. Anybody familiar with the Woodlawn Organization? Solid Woodlawn. TWO. Nobody familiar with that? Solidinsky. Oh, yeah, Solidinsky, yeah. Oh, you read that, huh? Okay. Right. Sharp, okay. Well, the Council of Churches, led by uh, Marv Chandler at the time, okay, at the heels of the riots, they asked Solidinsky with the Woodlawn Organization to come into Rochester and show grassroots people how to organize, okay? If you recall... We organized to the point of uh, gathering a proxy vote against Kodak. Anybody familiar with that one? Okay, we actually took the floor in a Kodak uh, board uh, stockholders meeting, okay, and, and made certain demands. Uh, at the time, Kodak was one of the biggest employers, you know, in the city. However, it excluded, it had, you know, like menial jobs for the few blacks that it had, you know, as janitors, okay? And we asked them to open up their doors of employment, okay? And let us be the filter, okay? Well, they made a commitment to do that, but then they reneged on the commitment, okay? So, but out of it all, still, we finally managed to wrangle uh, Rochester Jobs, which was then the filter for the jobs into Kodak, okay? But the churches 
were instrumental in bringing in Solinsky with the Woodlawn organization, okay? And you can see now that we've gone backwards, you know? I mean, look at the same issues that we had then, you know, are more prevalent now, today, today's society, okay? Uh, lack of education, lack of employment, lack of housing, you know, redlining. I mean, just, just name it every, in every discipline, okay? You know, we are still, you know, last or we are still being, you know, discriminated against. Where do the men of God come in in this picture? You know, they go to church on Sundays. Do they leave the same way they come in? You know, do they, do they miss the sermon? Do they miss the connection with the spiritual principle? What, what, what is it that, you know, uh, children's institute? The children's agenda, you know, are you familiar with that? Okay, well, well I won't go there if you're not familiar with it. But <clears throat> we, as men of God, have got to make a concerted effort to reconcile ourselves to what it is that God wants us to do in society to show this world a better way. We've got to be the leaders. We can't let the world lead because guess what they do? They take prayer out of church. They take discipline away from us and our children, disciplining our children. That, that's, that can't be. That can't be. Not if we want to show the world a better way. And that's our responsibility. I thought it was our obligation to show the world a better way. Uh, before I came in this morning, I looked up um, reconciliation. Got two definitions. The restoration of friendly relations or the action of making one view or belief compatible with another. What you see with churches, my opinion, again, 45-year-old African-American man. Mission drift. Preach the gospel in season and out of season. They left that. They're doing what is politically expedient. This is, again, my opinion because I've, I've watched where they allow the concept of the separation of church and state without even having an understanding of what it means. Separation of church and state just means you can't deny or force your religious beliefs. But that doesn't mean you can't get involved in issues and state your belief system. And your belief is, I believe people have the right to certain things. So they've allowed, basically, there's the old parable of um, the king, uh, the priest and the prophet. The priest has a role. I'm sorry. The king has a role and the priest has a role. You have too many priests who want to be the king instead of staying in their lane, preach the gospel in season and out of season as that moral compass for the community where everybody wants to be a politician. And you got Marlo coming next week, and I've said this to him. <laughs> uh, he's a great man of God. He has a gift of exhortation, Marlo Washington. Uh, he recently ran for city council, and I asked him, I said, I really don't think we need more politicians. I think we need men and women of God who are just going to tell the truth hmm. when it's not fashionable because the truth just is. We're going to separate clearly. This is good. This is evil. Or let's have a conversation out where good is now being called evil and evil is being called good. So it's mission drift. The word of God is to a degree clear. We can have discussions about it, but they've left their mission where the analogy of you go in uh, it used to, the analogy was, you see a gun shop and a liquor store on every corner. No. You will see a church on almost every corner. So what does that do? It's so if you're an impoverished community, you have vacant houses. A vacant house pays zero to the tax base. You have, this is kind of an inflammatory statement. You have a church who's a not, it's a tax-free. So that building pays zero to the tax base in exchange for a 501c3 status. 
So that means they're supposed to be a public good. And for a neighborhood organization, if those churches just took care of, don't worry about everything else. Just do the block around your church. Just that block. You'd have a huge shift like that. Hmm. Don't worry about nothing else. Just do the block around your church in exchange for this tax-free designation that you're getting in the community. Mission drift. All right, let's all repent. (laughs) 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 Oh, man. I have a million follow-up questions. (laughs) Um, All right, I'm going to do something against my better judgment and ask you to put my phone number on the screen here. Uh, I've already gotten like 10 texts, and there are more coming. Um, Can I ask you, while they're coming in, and I'm going to have to unfortunately ignore your answer to this question while I sort out what the questions that are coming in are, but I can't remember which one of you uh, referenced... Um, the, I think it's attributed to Dr. King the idea that Sunday morning at, 7, at 11 a.m. is the most segregated hour in America and uh, that, is, that is true it's probably more true now than when he said it and um, you know it doesn't seem to be motivated by animosity but it is self-perpetuating too and so can you speak about that? Put that could you say that again so we can hear you? I'm sorry. There's a huge component of fear and those who've heard fear, F-E-A-R, a false expectation appearing real. And fight or flight, again, 45-year-old African-American perspective. Um, when you get a levels of stress or you go with where you feel comfortable or who have certain things in common, you have very few people who would just run out and just, well, I'm going to go here. You go with people who, are, who look like you have same to live around you, have similar uh, cultures and norms that you do. That's a very real thing. So then the fear of, well, if I go somewhere else, what will happen? If you watch just the news and actually have never gone in the neighborhoods, you're going to have a definite fear of, I was, if I was just watching the news, I'd be like, well, I ain't going to that neighborhood either. And I'm like, well, that's my address. <laughs> I go in it every day. <laughs> but it's just these false expectations and, again, sensationalism of what is actually going on in the neighborhoods because Joel is safer in the neighborhood based off of the data than we would be. So it's, and it's spiritual. It's just absolute spiritual warfare. When you hear folks talking about we battle not against flesh and blood, but principalities and powers in high places. Rochester has a serious, a serious evil spirit over it. For years, just look at the fruit. Look at the fruit of it. And you have to address it spiritually. And that's a role, going back to your question about the churches. The church has got to be able to identify that because they're the ones that are supposed to be or who are knowledgeable to have or engage in that type of warfare. Wow. Did anyone read the article in the paper the other day where Billy Graham was saying he was going to pray for the nation? Nobody? Could you, could you uh, put the mic a little closer to you and yeah, repeat yeah. that? He's, he's like 90 years old. Yeah, he, it was in the paper. You know, he had a picture. You know, he's... But, you know, America needs a spiritual awakening. Amen. But where's it going to come from? Men of God. People of God. People of God have got to stand up and be counted. So you're saying that people don't stand up? (laughs) That was a rhetorical question. Look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. Yeah. 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 Affordable care. Education, 
I mean, just look at it. You know, mm. Jobs, I mean, look at it. Um, I received uh, several text message questions here, and almost all of them say the same thing. And so I probably have to ask that question. But there's one that's a little bit more specific that I got a couple of times that you can answer very quickly, and that's where is the freedom market, and uh, is that something that we can kind of visit and see and, and be involved with and meet you there and, and learn more by, by being present with you there? Yes, the, three, um, the freedom market is at 359 Webster Avenue, Rochester, New York, 14609. Uh, again, it's right in the heart of the Crescent. Um, now, as far as being involved with, or I will put the same challenge as it when we had the university, the community versus the, the community and university partnership. Uh, we had to lay out some rules in the beginning because some people don't just like to be observed as you come in or whatever the case may be. So I had put the charge on them in the beginning, the first phase of students to put the notepads and the pens down and come inside to serve first and reap the benefits later because it's all about relationship building because people will shun you if they come in the store and you're just sitting there with a pen and pad trying to observe, oh, African-American male buys beer or <laughs> Latino lady buys cigarettes or whatever. That's what was happening. So if we're going to do real qualitative participatory action research. You got to put those pins down first. Let's relationship build and then we, we grow from there. So then you get people because uh, we always have a saying in the hood, people do not care how much you know until they know how much you care. So you can have a triple PhD on inside of what should and shouldn't be, but people actually really don't care. They don't care who you are, where you come from, unless I know you care about me and my long being and that well-being of my family. I don't care what your research says. And that's the average person in the neighborhood. So you have to put that charge on them to be able to put those things aside, relationship build first, and then we move forward from that standpoint. So we were able to get some knowledge. There's a lot of still uh, liaison to go in those processes. So you have to be the liaison between the community and the university. So the community understands, well, what's the greater good about it? So when you take that data and that research, we have to charge the university to make sure that the input comes back to the community. How healthier are we getting? Are they drinking more water? Are they in increasing their fruit and vegetable consumption? Are they reducing their sugary drink consumption? So it's a charge that goes both ways. So when you want to come be a part, you have to be a part holistically and at the same time not just come in and leave because it's a fight for the long haul to take back the community. So yeah. if it's part-time, maybe it's counterproductive. But if it's genuine and it's for the long run, I would definitely accept it. Could you say the address one more time, please? 359 Webster Avenue, Rochester, right. New York. Um, that rumble that you hear at the other end of the building is our children getting ready to tear the place down, and there's like four adults down there protecting us from them. So I, I need to wrap us up very quickly, <laughs> but, but as I said, most of the questions I received by text message boil down to the following in one form or another, and it's what can we do? <laughs> now, if you could tell us that in 20 seconds, obviously we wouldn't have these problems, but... Uh, is there any, any bit of wisdom or knowledge or advice or suggestions that you can give us in any sort of remotely brief form that you think might be helpful? Or is there, I mean, what can we do? The biggest thing for me that I would say, it's all about resources because in order to fight the good fight, the spiritual fight, we actually, in a nutshell, we're about 25 years behind. 
trying to turn these communities around. So it's about having the ample amount of resources to be able to distribute in proper areas and provide those resources. Because when you talk about well, what's wrong with the communities and you peel that onion back and you really want to know and you find out what's really going on, you better have the resources available or you're just as much at harm to the people as anyone else was. By resources, you mean money. It could be a diverse amount of things, but it's resources. There are degrees of involvement. And uh, the first thing I would actually say is, sincerely, pray on it. Let God actually guide you as to what he would have you to do in your personal ministry. Because um, a lot of times, as Rob was explaining, volunteers, you don't want sometimes folks just to run in, eyes wide closed. Uh, what you actually get, get ready to deal with. So you pray on it and then where the Lord leads you. Because there's different degrees of involvement. Do we expect everybody to be frontline? No. Some people are comfortable with this is what I can do. I prefer just to send, well, here, here's that. Some folks say, no, maybe I want to come in. Maybe I'm good at stocking shelves. I'll just come out and do your shelves for you. Or I just, I like clean, I like what I'll come and do that. Or I want to come in and do something with the children or offer a word. Or I want to go to my circles and continue to talk about this story to raise awareness where I come from because this is not our normal conversation where we are so it's degrees of involvement but it's all because we're here in a spiritual context what does God lead you to do because as we engage in this you got to find your place I, I talked to my pastor a lot about the whole concept of spiritual gifts and he had to I was like well I don't know what my spiritual gift is he said the Lord will lead you I said well I've been talking to him he ain't said nothing to me yet I need some help. So in leading, so understanding what your spiritual gift is and how could you use that gift in the furthering of kingdom work. So it's not just a, you jump in, but you before you jump in with your feet, you pray, Lord, help me out. Don't let me drown because I can't swim. Then you jump in. Because as you, you use that analogy, jumping with your feet first. I was in the Navy and I couldn't swim. And I was, they said, why'd you go to the Navy? I said, he told me, they'll teach me. They teach you about, here, go 10, 15 feet up, jump in. I prayed before I jumped in. Lord, whatever you would have me to do, I'm going to trust in you. Because this battle, as Rob said, this is, this is not for the faint of heart. You have to be grounded in this work or you, it, can, it can damage you. It'll overwhelm you. So I thank God for it. Yeah, that's a good segue to mention what he was saying. Let God lead you because we have absolutely been led this entire journey by God. You know, it started off at the Freedom School level. That's, that's the truth. God is truth, you know. I mean, the evidence is there. We, we didn't plan any of this. This was given us by God. You know, he would open up a door. We walked through. He'd open another door. We walked through. And we... As men of God, we have to come together on a weekly basis to stay grounded in his word in order to stay involved in this work. We do this every Tuesday morning. We come together as men of God and pray and ask God to continue to lead us and to give us the strength to keep moving on. Because I'm telling you, Lord have mercy, I'd have been gone a long time ago if we were not for God. Yeah, that's right. You don't know what's happened to us. I mean, but, you know, we trust in God. Hey, we're fine with that. So you've given us an extra step in between. We have listen, learn, and act, and we need to put pray in there. 
That's an oversight on my part. I apologize. Yeah, well, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, maybe that's maybe that is included in listening. Thank you, Doug. That that not only listening to scripture and to other voices, but yeah, but listening to the spirit of God. Uh, and so, right off the bat, I'm telling you, we're going to have a, a a prayer task force on this this thing, and that's going to be step one or negative two or whatever, wherever we're at, and um, perhaps. Um, Perhaps you'd be willing to remember us in prayer in your times of prayer as well, and maybe we can maybe we can come together and pray together at at some time in the in the near future. Um, boy, oh boy, I have a million follow up questions, and I know you do too. Um, but we need to close our time now. Um, first of all, would you thank our our panel for being here? Brother George, Brother Wallace, Brother Robert, thank you so much. Uh, I I can't tell you how much it's meant to us to have you here with us today. Um, I really wanted to give you a chance to to ask us some questions and and, and ask us what's coming next for us, but we are just simply out of time and more so, more than that. Um, My my wife is one of the teachers, and I'm going to be in pain. Um, (laughs) Brother, listen. um, But perhaps we could... uh, we can we can be hopeful for for future conversations and relationships and uh, uh, I'd like to open our time for for communion now. The band has one more song to play. We'll conclude our time of worship. Uh, this table is open to all of us who serve and follow Jesus together, um, no matter where we've come from, what we look like, how old we are, etc., etc., etc. So I'm honored to uh, to invite you guys to join us to take communion uh, with us as we conclude our service this morning. Uh, Thank you again for being here, and we're going to try to turn this over. Uh, If you have children, please go um, save our teachers, and uh, we'll we'll uh, conclude with, with this song and communion. Let's do it. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com. 